0: First year of Cyrus, king of the Persians, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord that Jeremiah had spoken, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his kingdom, by word of mouth and also in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of the Persians, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has also charged me to build a house for him in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Whoever is among his people, let him go up, and may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. They were brothers, though they seemed strange to one another. In 490 BC, the Persian army invaded Europe and met the opposing Greek forces at the Battle of Marathon. In our minds, we may be able to imagine the two sides of the battle. The Greeks may seem familiar, since we think that we know something about them already. We sense, perhaps, that they are cultural, if not our genetic ancestors. The Persians, though, who could say what each of us imagines some horde of strangers in motley dress, exotic in every sense, their war camp alive with funky smells and the susurration of a dozen barbarian dialects. But if we picture it thus, we misapply the little knowledge that we actually possess. You see, the Persians, too, were Indo-Europeans, though they came from the east, from the direction of the land of the Mesopotamians. Yes, perhaps 2,000 years before the calamitous meetings, At the battles of Marathon and Thermopylae, probably in a land somewhere between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, a still unidentified group of Proto-Indo-European speakers, many thousands or tens of thousands in number most likely, began to branch out from their homeland in all directions. They had embraced a Bronze Age revolution, as well as agriculture and pastoralism, knowledge of the wheel and the axle though they may not have invented those technologies enabled them to move fast both in terms of immigration and war they invaded europe from the east annihilating or assimilating the ancient european farmer cultures that had existed there for thousands of years over the course of several centuries one branch of many such indo-european speakers moved into italy and became the latin cultures that would eventually form the roman republic in 509 bc Others went farther west, becoming the Celts of Western Europe. Another branch moved into north, into Northwestern Europe, becoming the various peoples that are now remembered as the Slavs and the Norse and so on. Still another branch moved into Southeastern Europe and became the assortment of tribes that would one day develop into the ancient Greek culture that we will begin to study in the next series. Other Indo-Europeans also spread into Anatolia from the northeast and became the Hittites, who ruled there and extended their influence and power into Mesota- Mesopotamia, Canaan, and Egypt. Others traveled eastward. They became the Tukarians of Central Asia, a culture since disappeared and now only an archaeological curiosity. Another group of Indo-European speakers traveled south and east from their homeland and into India, where they spread the Hindu religions and the Hindi language whose ancient form is preserved in the Sanskrit documents of those traditions. Finally, another branch of Indo-European speakers immigrated southeastward and established themselves in Persia, in the land that we now call Iran. The name Iran actually refers to land of the Aryans because the people moving here and into India called themselves Aryans. So in truth, when the Persians faced the Greeks at Marathon, they were not truly alien to one another. No, they were more like long lost cousins, encountering one another, unawares of their prior relationship, not knowing that they shared ancestors. It is, in a sense, a very Greek tale when you think about it, reminding one of the story of Oedipus, who murdered his father and married his mother, thinking that both were strangers. So anyway, perhaps a thousand years before they would meet the Greeks in southeastern Europe, the Persians had settled the Iranian plateau a mostly mountainous region to the east of Mesopotamia. It is an immense place, much bigger than all of Mesopotamia in terms of square kilometers, and home to nearly all of the world's climates and its varied locales. While the land is known perhaps mostly for its arid central basin and some hellish desert stretches, there are also alpine heights, jungle lowlands, and cool breezy seasides. The Persians were not the only Indo-European culture to develop into that diverse landscape, but they are the ones that made the biggest entrance onto the stage of this podcast. As time passed after their initial settlement of the land, they came into increasing contact with the more technologically advanced and culturally refined peoples to the West, particularly in Babylonia. The Persians, the Scythians, the Medes, they were all hardy, horse-riding Indo-European peoples that lived in the area, and their services were all increasingly sought by the city-states of Mesopotamia, particularly for their warlike attributes. The magnificent city-states, which had ruled the land since the time of Shamir had little to fear from bands of nomadic barbarians living in the mountains to the east, or so they thought. By the sixth century BC, the Neo-Babylonian Empire had come over to, to rule over Mesopotamia and the Levant, but they did so by depending greatly on the arms and armor of the Medes and the Persians, who had formed their own kingdoms in the rugged lands to the east. This episode, number 25 in the first series of the Western Traditions podcast, is nominally about the Persians. I will begin with a brief introduction to the Medes, however, because they are the first to establish a state in the area of what we now call Iran, and with this they added to the major powers present in the region. The Near East had once known two primary powers, one in Egypt and one always in Mesopotamia. And there were secondary powers in Canaan and in Anatolia with a certain amount of variation in the importance of each. For a brief time, Assyria had nearly encompassed all of these kingdoms in the iron grip of her power. With the rise of the Medes, there was now a new factor in the political political equations of the Near East. And in the sixth century BC, the Median Empire would become the deciding factor. So who were the Medes? We need to ask the question only because they are the ones who first unite the region, later known as Persia, and bring under its dominion portions of Anatolia and Mesopotamia as well, though they never defeat the Babylonians so soundly as do the Persians later on. Right away you might feel a little confused. Are the Medes then different than the Persians? And if so, how? You would not be the first to find it all a little confusing. While a narrative of events about all this is recorded by the Greek historian Herodotus and others, modern scholars have come to doubt the veracity of the details and even the historicity or actual existence of some of the people and events described in those historical documents. All that said, I am going to primarily present here the narrative that Herodotus would have us believe. Nevertheless, I will also describe modern scholarly doubt in some of his accountings, as well as some possible alternatives to his version of history. Now, the ancient land of the Medes was essentially to the east of Assyria, which lay in northern Mesopotamia. I will include maps on the website at western-traditions.org, that's western-traditions.org, but if you were to look at a modern map of Iran, you could imagine Media, the land of the Medes that is, occupying the area around the capital and Tehran and the lands west of it. This area had been under Assyrian control since at least the 10th century B.C., Around the year 700 BC, the Medes, while still subject to Assyrian overlords, came under the rule of a single king of their own, named Deoces. That is written out D-E-I-O-C-E-S, Deoces. That's the best pronunciation you'll get from me on that. Though led by a single king, the Medes would have still been vassals to the the Assyrians. According to Herodotus, this man, Deoces, rose to the kingship first by making an excellent name for himself as a judge among his people. Such was the way with leadership in many places in the ancient world. Recall how the period after Israel's conquest of Canaan is referred to as the time of judges in the Bible. Those biblical heroes were not simply military heroes, but also looked upon as wise and as possessing enough influence to make legal and legitimate rulings though it should not be thought that the cases presented to these judges, those of Israel or those presented to diocese, the future king of media, don't think that these cases were held in a courtroom, as we might normally imagine, but rather these things would have been presented to the so-called judges wherever they were. On these cases, the judge might meditate for a time, consult previous rulings or ancestral laws, and then give his decision, expecting it to be followed through on. Now, King Solomon of Israel was also known for his wisdom as a judge as well. There is the famous biblical story of the two prostitutes in a brothel who gave birth within a, within a few days of each other. One of the children died, and while they all slept, the mother of the dead child took the other woman's child to her bosom and insisted when they woke that it was hers. They brought their case before King Solomon. The king and judge promptly decided that the child should be cut in two and half given to each woman. The real mother reacted by insisting that the other woman be allowed to keep the child, and Solomon wisely saw that this was the true mother, the one who did not want the child to die, and rewarded her with possession of her child again. So the office of judge was both a path to leadership as well as a component of it in the ancient Near East. Deoses, then, that first Median king, gained fame for legal wisdom among the Medes, Soon, according to Herodotus, to Herodotus, the people desired him to be a king over them, so that his wisdom might guide them all. He accepted, and then ordered a mighty fortress to be built as his palace, on top of a hill, with seven circling walls to defend it, each wall higher than the one exterior to it, so that the innermost ring possessed the highest battlement. Furthermore, deoses invented an unusual method of communication with the king, much unlike what must have been his previous, much more familiar way with his people. No, now that he was king, no one would meet him directly, except for his most trusted advisers. All requests would be delivered to his guards and brought to him privately, nor would any person from outside this inner circle ever meet the king anymore. The city in which he lived was named Ekbatana, and it would continue to be an important metropolis long after the Medes lost power. Now, diocese continued to rule wisely as a judge of his people for 53 years, according to Herodotus, that is. Modern archaeology can't find evidence of such a ruler in existing records, though there is a king in the Zagros Mountains around this time with a similar name. That mountain range is the one that separates Mesopotamia from Persia, running roughly southeast from Anatolia to the eastern coast of the Persian Gulf. Nevertheless, modern historians suspect that this tale was simply a legend of the Median people that was passed on to to Herodotus. Now, Herodotus also tells us what little we know of the Medes in the first book of his histories. He states that their total number constituted six tribes, and he names each tribe in his book. Sure to catch the Western ear is the last named tribe in his text, the Magi, M-A-G-I. Yes, as in the Magi who are encountered in the Gospel according to Matthew, who come to worship the newborn Savior in Bethlehem. The Magi were apparently not simply a tribe among the Medes, but a priestly caste who administered the religious rites of the Medes. We see such a caste system in their fellow Indo-Europeans, the Hindus in India, who divide their population into four castes, the priestly class most exalted among them. We also see this in some non-Indo-Europeans, such as the Hebrews and Judah, among whom the Levites were the priestly caste. Since we are not directly studying the Hindus in this podcast, and since the Medes themselves play a somewhat ephemeral role in it all, I will not get into the details of these caste systems. I do want to note, though, that a caste is not simply a societal class of people into which a person might enter with sufficient study or some other accomplishment. No, caste systems are genetic. You are either born into a caste or you are not. And marriage between castes is generally rare, to such an extent that in many Indian villages, in which people of different castes have been living side by side for generation, the genetic difference between different village members of distinct castes is greater than the genetic difference between Italians and Norwegians in Europe. But enough for the moment, anyway, about the Magi. After Deoses, the first known king of the Medes, passed away. The Medes grew in power while remaining vassals of the Assyrians. They brought other Iranian peoples into their realm by force generally, and this included the Persians. Now, Cyaxares was apparently a descendant of Deoses, his grandson, according to Herodotus. As king of the Persians, Cyaxares allied with the rebellious Babylonians and, as described in the last episode, helped to destroy the Assyrian Empire. The Babylonians took most of the Mesopotamian portion of the empire, as well as Canaan. It is not clear if the Medes simply earned independence with their assistance to the Babylonians, or if they were given territory in the northern part of Assyria and southern Anatolia. Ancient sources and modern archeology span disagree on the matter. It does seem that the two powers, the Babylonians and the Medes, may have continued to work together in the decades following their mutual victory over the next couple decades, but it also appears that they grew apart. The Medes expelled or conquered other powers in the region, such as the Scythians. They also expanded territorially into eastern Anatolia during the reign of Syaxeres. Syaxeres eventually came into conflict with Lydia, a kingdom that had emerged in the post-Hittite era in western Anatolia, directly across from Greece. A five-year war with the Lydians ended in 585 BC when a solar eclipse shocked the participants into ending the conflict. A peace treaty was later negotiated. One of the stratagems of the peace, aimed at sealing alliances among the most powerful realms in the region, was the intermarriage of all the royal families in Babylon, Media, and Lydia. King Croesus in Lydia married a daughter from the family of King Syaxeres, and another daughter married Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Now, Syaxares' son, Astyages, married one of these Lydian princesses and became king of the Medes when his father died shortly after making the treaty. There is little reliable knowledge about Astyages available, since existing accounts are all obviously biased or handicapped by the author's reliance on stories rather than personal experience. The accounting of the life of Astyages, as found in Book 1 of the Histories of Herodotus, is one of these suspect reports. However, since Herodotus is the founding father, in some sense, of all Western history, I will summarize his description of Astyages here. Per Herodotus, Astyages had a terrible dream one night. He dreamed of his daughter, and that from her would flow a stream of water that would flood his entire kingdom. His magi, remember that they were the priestly class of the Medes and advisors to the king, his magi explained that the dream was a portent, From his daughter would come an heir who would destroy his empire. Now, when the Median Empire consisted of several smaller kingdoms, as empires usually are formed when one kingdom subjugates other kingdoms but does not necessarily take direct control of their land. Instead, the defeated kings are made into vassals of the conquering king. So the Persians, at this time, lived under their own king, a man named Cambyses. That's C-A-M-B-Y-S-E-S, Cambyses but they were subordinate to the Medes. Think of the Persian kingdom as just one portion of the empire of the Medes. The Persians had come into the area, presumably along with the Medes and the Scythians and other Indo-European speakers. The Persian tribes by this time had conquered the Elamites, who had long plagued the ancient Babylonians. They ruled their own territory within the Median empire from cities such as Susa and Anshan. Now, Astyages, king of the Medes, fearful of his dream and its portents, decided to marry off his daughter to this Cambyses, king of the Persians, because he considered it so unlikely that this man, known for his humility, would have anything to do with the rebellion against the Medes. Herodotus makes no mention of Cambyses being a king among the Persians, but other archaeological records suggest that he was. Herodotus apparently believed that Cambyses was a man of only middle station among the Persians and therefore much, much lower than a mead. Thus, Astyages believed that he could avoid the evil omen of the dream. Nevertheless, the terrible dream in a new form returned to haunt Astyages after his daughter married the quiet Cambyses and became pregnant. Now, he dreamed that a vine grew from the womb of his daughter and overshadowed not just his empire, but all of Asia. By this, Herodotus probably meant all of the Near East, that realm including Mesopotamia, Anatolia, in Egypt, and the land of the Medes, of course. Concerned that somehow the dream would come true unless he took extreme measures, Osteoges now sent for his daughter, according to Herodotus, and had her brought to his palace to await the birth of the child. It seems odd to us, perhaps, that his son-in-law, Cambyses, might have permitted his wife to be taken from his side at such a time, but this was a different culture, and it is always possible that Herodotus has the details wrong, as he often does. Once the child was born, Astyages ordered his general, Harpagus, to take the child, bring it back to his own home, and kill it. The passage in which Harpagus answers is a very telling one for those of us living today in the Western world who wish to understand the way in which people interacted with their monarchs in the past, especially in the East. Here's the text of his answer from the pages of Herodotus. O king, never in time past did Harpagus disoblige thee in anything, and be sure that through all future time he will be careful and nothing to offend. If, therefore, it be thy will that this thing be done, it is for me to serve thee with all diligence. Remember now that Harpagus is not some obsequious courtier in the court of the king. He is a warrior, a leader of men, and yet he bows and scrapes embarrassingly, to warriors anyway, before his king, even when asked to do something absolutely wicked. And make no mistake, Harpagus is disturbed internally by this request, as the following passages in the text of Herodotus show. The general's subservience, then, should show us the degree to which people in these cultures abase themselves before either appointed or anointed rulers. Of course, even that remark of mine should be taken with a grain of salt, while most scholars of this area might admit that there is a greater degree of servility in the culture under discussion we should also remember that we are reading what was written by a fifth century greek someone absolutely devoted to his own form of freedom and opposed in many ways to the culture under description thus bias prevents us from really relying too heavily on ancient written records nevertheless let us continue with the story as herodotus tells it in summary Harpagus brings a herdsman from the mountains to his home and tells him that the king himself, Osteages, has ordered him to take this child, the grandson of Osteages, and expose him in the wilderness. But he does not reveal to the herdsman directly that this child is in any way special. Anyway, the plan is that the child will die, but Harpagus would then not be directly responsible. Harpagus states that he will come to see evidence of the dead child later. Now the herdsman returns home with the baby to discover that his own wife has just given birth to a stillborn child. Discussing the matter together and considering how and from whom the herdsman received the child, the man and wife realize that the child is probably royal. The herdsman then leaves their own stillborn child in the wilderness, and he keeps the royal child to raise as his and his his wife's own. Like Harpagus and his wife, the couple choose to appear to carry out the will of a superior without actually doing anything wrong or getting royal blood on their hands. Harpagus later sends a trusted bodyguard to observe the dead child, that is, the child of the herdsman and not the actual royal child, and the dead baby is given a royal funeral. Now, the child that survived, the grandson of Astyages, the one who would someday become Cyrus, king of kings, grows And at the age of 10, he comes into conflict with the son of an important mead while playing among other children. This important mead, the father of the offended child, later went to King Astyages to complain of the hurt inflicted on his son by a boy of no distinction, a Persian herdsman child. Astyages summoned the child for punishment, but upon looking at him, immediately suspected who Cyrus really was. He brought the herdsman in and extracted truth from him about how he received the child, and then he brought Harpagus into the meeting. The general knew that it was time to tell the truth, and revealed to his king what he had done. The king appeared to rejoice at the way things had turned out. He was happy that his grandson was actually alive, and he asked Harpagus to send his own son to accompany Cyrus, and for the general to return later for a banquet. Astyages then slays the son of Harpagus and served his cooked flesh to the general, who first eats his fill before being shown the hands, feet, and head of his own son. Astoundingly, according to Herodotus, Harpagus shows no alarm at learning that he has just eaten his own son and reassures the king that all that the royal person desires and does is as it should be. Now, the boy Cyrus was sent back to his real father, Cambyses, and was raised among the Persians. He became well-known as a brave young man. Harpagus, the general, tricked into eating his own son, bided his time. When Cyrus was fully grown, he convinced the young prince to revolt against Astyages and to seize the kingdom for himself. And then Harpagus, leader of the king's army, betrayed the king in battle, and Cyrus was victorious. Thus, the Persian Empire began. Now, the Persian Empire is also called the Achaemenid Empire, and the spelling of that is pretty difficult for an English speaker. It's A-C-H-A-E-M-E-N-I-D, Achaemenid. This refers to an ancestor of Cyrus on the Persian side of the family. This empire, assuming the place of the Median Empire and expanding greatly upon its borders, would endure for two centuries, occupying and controlling all of Mesopotamia all of what we now call Iran, Pakistan, and Afghanistan to the east, and the Levant, Egypt, and Anatolia in the west. For a brief time, the Persians would even be masters of a good portion of Greece. But that is a tale I will leave for the second series on ancient Greece. In the meantime, let us continue with the story of this newborn Persian empire just after Cyrus took the throne. Now, much of what I relate here is history according to Herodotus, and so we have to accept each account with caution. But Cyrus was indeed the first king of his line. We know this. It is backed up by other historical and archaeological findings. We also know the names of the other kings who followed him, and we know the dates of their reigns. We have solidly entered into real history now, as we move through the first millennium BC and every great state has an army of scribes to record the deeds and words of its kings. The stories which Herodotus shares though about the kings of the Medes and the Persians are probably combinations of fact and fiction. I include these stories in spite of their questionable veracity because they are now a part of the foundation of our culture as much as the myths that the Greeks told one another about the creation of the world about Zeus defeating his titan father and usurping his throne, or about Odysseus enduring on a desert isle with a lovely ever-young goddess while pining for his wife. Just so, the tales recorded by Herodotus, even if they are not entirely true, are now part of the corpus of texts that we must remember and share, or risk losing touch with our roots, with our Western traditions. Now, after seizing control of the Empire, formerly belonging to the Medes, sometime around the year 550 BC, Cyrus was not content. He went on to seize all of Anatolia, spending the first decade of his reign conquering the various kingdoms there and consolidating his power. One of those kingdoms that he conquered, Lydia, lay on the western coast of the peninsula, just across from Greece. The Lydians were also an Indo-European-speaking people, related to the Hittites who had once ruled much of the peninsula. The story of their kingdom, that of the Lydians, and a detailed account of how it fell to the Persians, I will actually leave for the next series on Greece because this is one of the key early passages in the history of Herodotus and because that western coast of Anatolia was familiar to Greek culture. In fact, many people living on the coast of Anatolia in that time were in fact Greeks and the land was familiar to the Greeks. The ancient city of Troy, primary scene of Homer's first epic, the Iliad, was also found on that coast. So that particular tale I will leave for a future episode when we have met the Greeks and they are about to meet the Persians. Anyway, after conquering Lydia and the rest of Anatolia, Cyrus then turned his attention to Mesopotamia and the Neo-Babylonian Empire. In 539 BC at the Battle of Opus, He soundly defeated Babylonian forces and went on to quickly consolidate his hold over Western Asia. Egypt, however, remained free and independent until his death. Cyrus the Great was more than just a conqueror, however. He was also a statesman and a capable administrator, or at least he knew who to trust with the administration of his empire. In this regard, his greatest accomplishment was his organization of all his lands into a system of satrapies. A satrapy, that's spelled S-A-T-R-A-P-Y, a satrapy was a geographic administrative division of the empire, and a satrap was basically a regional governor of that division. Thus, each ruler of each parcel of land under the Persian throne was ruled or governed by a man who owed his position and title directly to the sitting king. All total throughout the years, the empire was divided into anywhere between 20 and 30 satrapies. The administration of each was given out at the discretion of the all-powerful Persian king. Not only did wise administration help to govern the realm peacefully, but the entire empire was founded in such a way that Cyrus and the Persian kings who succeeded him were able to trust in, in the happiness of their subjects. You see, unlike many conquerors of the past, Cyrus was exceptionally liberal with the people subjected to his rule. In general, all conquered peoples were allowed to keep their culture, their religion, their local customs and laws. The only real change in accepting Persian rule would be the presence of a satrap, who would collect taxes and act as a local arbiter. Furthermore, each region was expected to provide a set number of troops whenever the king called to raise an army. As long as the people in a satrapy paid these taxes, supplied these troops, and lived peacefully, the Persian crown had little interest in their daily affairs. In fact, Cyrus and the later Persian kings would actually encourage popular cultural and religious expressions, as I will show later in this episode, when Cyrus declared the freedom of the exiled Jews in Babylon to return to their homeland in Palestine and to rebuild their temple. The previous comments, however, should not be taken to mean that the empire was always a benevolent force, Obviously, laws were enforced, punishments were exacted, and many of those punishments might have seemed quite brutal to us now. Chopping off hands and noses, tearing out tongues, blinding criminals, castrating them, crucifying them, all these and other vicious tortures were implemented in the Persian penal system. Nevertheless, as empires go, most people likely enjoyed the relative cultural freedom under the Persians. Local cultures, too, had their own hideous forms of criminal criminal punishment, their own unusual laws and taboos, so the Persians probably did seem like a force for good. While we take note of Greek resistance against the Persians in the name of freedom in the 5th century BC, we should remember that as many or more Greeks living in Anatolia, in North Africa, and in Greece itself, were happy to accept Persian hegemony. We should remember this when judging the Persians from afar, especially when watching modern depictions of the Greco-Persians' war, per, Greco-Persians war which sometimes portray the Persians as overtly wicked, decadent, and corrupt. After we get to that episode in history, I will describe how the Athenians acted in acquiring an empire of their own in the power vacuum that followed their victory over the Persians, and in enforcing their rule. Once you hear that, it should be easy to remember that the rulers of every culture, even those that tout democracy, can be despotic and cruel when necessary. Now, over the course of its existence, the Persian Empire would also be supported tremendously by its system of roads. Obviously, wherever there was civilization, there had been roads of some sort from the very beginning. Under the Assyrians, however, there had been a certain amount of systematization of the road network in their empire, and the Persians would continue this progress, especially under Darius, the third king of Persia. That king of kings would formalize the so-called Royal Road, which led directly from the capital in Susa, a city not far from Euphrates River, all the way to Sardis in western Anatolia. Persian power, however, more than anything, was sustained by naked strength and effectiveness in combat. The rulers of the Neo-Babylonian Empire had sustained their power with wealth. They employed other, more vigorous men to enforce their will, such as the Medes, the Scythians, and the Persians. This was their undoing. The Persians became wealthy through their power, but they acquired all that, as had the Persians before them, via their military strength and bravery. As historian Will Durant says in Our Oriental Heritage, the first of 11 books in his series about world history, an empire exists only so long as it retains its superior capacity to kill. The Persians understood this. At least the early Persians did. The young men of Persia learned at an early age how to handle a horse, how to use sword and spear and bow and arrow. They lived in the field and ate the simple fare of soldiers, always maintaining a readiness and a willingness to ride and to fight. They were a nation of warriors, and their subject nations feared to provoke their wrath, preferring instead quiet, humble submission to their power. The passage of time, however, proved to be their only capable enemy. Perhaps it was the taking of Babylon that began their decline, their familiarity with the soft ways of that ancient city, long adept in the ways of decadence. Persian rulers soon became more interested in their harems than they did in seeking military conquest or securing their borders. And their army in general struggled even as it became bigger, much bigger, with each subject nation providing from as far west as Libya and Greece and as far east as modern-day Afghanistan, with all of these providing troops, the Persian army became famous for its numbers. Ancient historians tell us that the army sent to meet Alexander the Great at the Battle of Arbela in the year 331 BC, they tell us that army was composed of more than a million soldiers. Now, while there may be some exaggeration involved in this account, even skeptical modern scholars do not doubt the possibility of several hundred thousand troops and other supporters and camp followers in that Persian formation. However however grand this army was, as Alexander the Great and his Macedonian advisors long, had long recognized, it was a disorderly mob. The Persian army ruled by then more through fear than actual threat. The army was a mass of largely unmotivated conscripts, though its core was still the famous Immortals, a unit of 10,000 Persian hardies, and of course the fearsome Persian cavalry. Still, Time and size and decadence had by then worn down the Persian moral fiber and made the empire vulnerable. Perhaps, too, it was even the focus on militaristic strength that undermined the Persians over the long haul. Persians were not encouraged to learn trades, to engage in commerce, to produce anything. They largely let other peoples in their realm do those things, and maybe their lack of connection to the day-to-day functioning of society also jeopardized their hold on power. But we are looking too far ahead, to the end of the Persian Empire, when we are really just at the beginning. Now, Cyrus died in 530 BC after ruling Persia and its subject nations for 20 years. He left a very strong empire to his eldest son, Cambyses II. Herodotus describes Cambyses in a negative light. What we do know about him is the following, that Cambyses soon conquered the Levant, And after he seized Phoenicia, he went on to defeat the Egyptians in battle as well. And soon after that, the Greeks of Cyrene and Libya, these are coastal lands to the west of Egypt, they sent tribute of earth and water to Cambyses, accepting his dominion without a fight. We know this much is true, but other details of the reign of Cambyses are not so clear. Herodotus describes a secret assassination of Cambyses' youngest brother, whom Cambyses, the power-mad king, killed because a dream told him that Smerdis would sit on his throne. Smerdis, according to Herodotus, was the name of Cambyses' younger brother. Modern sources name him differently, as Bardia, but regardless. Other sources disagree with this betrayal, and many other modern scholars think that the younger brother was never assassinated. According to the text of Herodotus, though, the assassination was carried out in secret and no one actually knew that Smerdis, the younger brother of the king Cambyses, had been killed. In addition, Herodotus describes Cambyses as disrespecting and desecrating religious sites in Egypt. This also seems unlikely, given the Persian policy of quelling dissent by allowing their subjects free reign in their cultural affairs. And regarding Cambyses' fall from power and the ascension to the throne of Darius the Great, Herodotus tells a story that is a little convoluted and more than a little far-fetched. According to Herodotus, sometime after this younger brother, Smerdis was assassinated, and while Cambyses was still in Egypt consolidating his victory there, two brothers, both of them magi, taking advantage of the fact that one of them bore a great resemblance to the murdered younger brother of the king, seized the throne. Not only did this one brother look like the deceased prince, the younger brother of King Cambyses, but he also bore the same name, Smerdis. We should understand additional significance here in that the Magi were, if you remember, a tribe of the Medes, and they were not Persians. Thus, this move can be seen as an attempt to return power in the empire to the Medes. When news reached Cambyses in Egypt, according to Herodotus, he realized his terrible error. He had murdered his own brother for nothing because the dream had still come true. A man named Smerdis did sit on the throne in Persia. You might see a similarity in themes here with Herodotus, this dream always coming true just as it did with Osteages and his grandson Cyrus taking his empire from him despite everything that Osteages did to prevent it. This aspect of Herodotus' history, this textual need to provide supernatural explanations for all worldly event, events, was one of the first things that made modern scholars suspect the accuracy of his accountings. Now, Marching back to put down the rebellion, Cambyses, king of Persia, injured himself when he pierced his thigh with his own sword. According to Herodotus, predictably, the wound had been foretold when Cambyses had earlier damaged a statue of an Egyptian god at exactly the same point on his body, on the statue's thigh. The wound was mortal, according to the text, and Cambyses lingered for three weeks, slowly dying. Before his final end, he explained to his troops the treachery that had occurred and charged his army with returning to Persia and reclaiming power in the name of the Persians. Then he died. His army did not overthrow the Magi Smerdis, however. They did not believe that what Cambyses said was true, and they assumed that he was just angry that his younger brother had usurped the throne. After some time, though, suspicion grew about the new king, especially as he never left his palace, Seven Persians of importance formed a junta and overthrew the usurper. A man named Darius was among their number and he took the throne in the aftermath and went on to become one of the greatest kings in all the history of Persia. Modern scholarship questions the narrative of Herodotus on this matter. The sequence of kings that he presents is certainly true, but the consensus now is that Darius usurped the throne when the younger brother of Cambyses tried to seize power. It is believed that he is the one who came up with the imposter story in order to get away with killing a legitimate heir to the throne. Nevertheless, under Darius, the Persians expanded their empire to its greatest extent. After he took power, he continued his predecessor's policy of territorial expansion, achieving victories south of Egypt, in Asia, and most notably for us, in Europe. Persian forces during the reign of Darius crossed the Bosporus the strait that separates the Anatolian Peninsula from Europe proper, and conquered ancient Macedonia and Thrace. If you have read or otherwise learned about Alexander the Great already, it may surprise you to know that his kingdom, the kingdom of Macedonia, long before he was born, was actually one of the first to submit to Persian rule, offering up the earth and water required to make peace with the king of kings. It is important to remember this when we get to the Greek series, which I will start this summer, that many Greeks did not fight for their freedom and gladly accepted Persian hegemony before the Athenians, the Spartans, and others decided to make a last stand against conquest. Now Darius was still ruling over the Persian Empire in 490 BC, when elements of his mighty army met the Athenians at Marathon and experienced a rare defeat that would remarkably become a major turning point in Western history, an event which would, in some ways, both found and preserve our Western traditions. it is time to discuss the spiritual beliefs of the Persians. Believe it or not, the ancient religions of the Persians, and there were more than one, have had a significant impact on the development of Judaism and Christianity. This phenomenon, this influence of Persian religious concepts, will continue to be discussed in this podcast throughout future series, but for the time being, let us begin to acquaint ourselves with the Persian religious background. When the Persians came out of Central Asia and ascended onto the Iranian plateau, they brought with them an Indo-European religion that bore many resemblances to the religion that the Aryans would bring with them into northern India, where the various Hindu religions would later develop. The varied and colorful gods of this religion were still worshipped in the days of Cyrus the Great, their king. I will not spend too much time on getting into the details of those earliest gods of the Persians. They belong more properly to a podcast about Indian religion. Their impact on Western traditions, while not negligible, is also not worthy of too much of this particular podcast's time. Let the podcaster of Indian religions do them justice. Understand only then that they were not at all austere, reserved gods, but rather much more like the exotic, bizarre figures that we can see represented in Hindu art and architecture. Now, eventually, this religion of the Persians, Persians came to focus on one particular god, and we have seen this happen already in many other pagan polytheistic religious systems, this increasing focus on one particular god. In the case of the Persians, this god was Mithra, that's M-I-T-H-R-A, Mithra, a god also found in Hinduism under the name Mitra, M-I-T-R-A. Over time, the Persian Mithra became distinguished from the more Eastern Indian Mitra. Mithra of the Persians became their chief god and the spiritual center of what would eventually become one of the first mystery religions. Interestingly, Mithra is remembered, among other things, for slaying a great bull and using its blood to fertilize the primordial earth. Listeners should hearken back to the various fascinations with bulls seen throughout the Near Eastern world and even throughout the Mediterranean in Semitic and Egyptian and Indo-European religions Bulls in the ancient world were either worshipped or slain, or both. The primary reason for taking note of Mithraism now is its longevity and its eventual proliferation into the Western world. Even after Zoroastrianism would gain popularity among the Persians, as I shall discuss shortly, Mithraism would remain a primary religion in the Near East, and after encounters with the Roman Empire, it would spread throughout that realm. In fact, the so-called pagans of the Roman Empire who resisted Christianity and its rise during the period of late antiquity, the first few centuries after the birth of Christ, those Roman pagans were not, for the most part, worshippers of Jupiter and Apollo and Minerva and other familiar names of Roman gods from our school books, but they were followers of Mithra, whose mystery of religion competed with Christianity for the hearts and minds of Roman subjects. Now, what do I mean by mystery of religion? A mystery of religion involves secrets, secrets only known to the initiated, which also means that there is a rite of initiation into the religion, of bringing the believer solidly into the embrace of the religion. Mithraism was not the only mystery of religion, and it was probably not the first, but this mystery does distinguish it from any other prior and contemporary religions around it. Christianity is, by the way, also a mystery religion in which only the initiated may participate in receiving the Eucharist, the body and the blood of Christ. The spread of this mystery religion of Mithraism into the Roman Empire would obviously come later. Now, during the time of the first few kings of Persia, a new religion was coming into competition with the older Mithraic religion. This was the religion known today as Zoroastrianism, The founder of the religion, the human founder, that is, was a man named Zarathustra. He is recognized by followers of Zoroastrianism as the prophet who revealed the true religion to the pagan masses of Persia. Speculation as to when this happened varied, and obviously some do not believe that Zarathustra ever existed. If the prophet was a real historical figure, he could not have appeared any later than the 7th century BC, since there is by then already evidence of the religion propagating in Persia. Now, whether or not Cyrus was a Zoroastrian or not is unclear, but Darius the Great, who I earlier described as usurping the throne near the end of the 6th century BC, Darius was definitely a follower of this new religion, and thus his ascent to the throne might also be viewed as a religious revolution, as well as a political coup. Zarathustra, whenever he appeared in Persian history, revealed to the people the one true high god, whose name was Ahura Mazda. That's A-H-U-R-A, the second word in that is Mazda, M-A-Z-D-A, Ahura Mazda. Apparently Zoroastrian theology explained the multiple gods of earlier Persian paganism as primarily being emanations of this one true god. In other words, temporal and temporary representations of the eternal high god Ahura Mazda. And some of those ancient deities were, re- were rejected in the new Zoroastrian theology, and they were seen as misbegotten gods who were really just demons who should be ignored or re- reviled. Thus, this new religion did not entirely eschew the ancient religion of Iran, but accepted it as incomplete or only partially true. Now, though, Zarathustra had revealed the infinite and eternal truth in Ahura Mazda, the god of creation, the god of light, the sun god, and there was no reason to continue in the folly of previous religious beliefs. Now there are many interesting ties between the religious ideas of the Zoroastrians and their neighbors to the east and west, and to religions of later times. Their central text is a book called the Avesta, and in it are many passages and stories that are similar to those found in the Vedas of Hindu theology. And at the same time, it seems to possess many characteristics of Babylonian religion, such as the idea that the world was created in seven stages. Furthermore, we can focus perhaps on the fact that the Zoroastrian religion concentrated its religious theology in a book. In the present day, of course, all religions seem to have their books, their holy tombs, their scrolls, and so on. Each has its own way of using writing to preserve their laws, their rites, and their history. In the past, this was less common. Now obviously we know from the preserved tablets that even Sumer, earliest of the known civilizations in the Near East, even they put at least some of their religious ideas into writing. But Zoroastrians appear to be the first ones to draw a clear line between the orthodoxy contained in their book and the untrustworthiness of all the other religious texts. There are, there, are, there are a variety of texts used in the religion of Zoroastrianism, but the Avesta is considered pure and contains no error, only this book can be trusted infallibly. The Avesta was also something like the Old Testament of the Bible, another religious text deemed inerrant by its followers, in that the Avesta contained a motley collection of stories, prayers, ritual guides, moral exhortations, and more. I should note here that I speak of Zoroastrianism in the present tense because, unlike many of the ancient religions which I have reviewed and will continue, continue to review, such as the ancient religions of the Greeks, the Romans, the Celts, the Norsemen. Unlike those religions, Zoroastrianism continues to exist, though there may be only a few hundred thousand believers left, spread around modern-day Iran, India, and the rest of the world. The Zoroastrian religion is also responsible for introducing the concept of dualism into Western religious thought. In the earliest form or emanation of the religion, there there may not have been a counter-deity to Ahura Mazda, the god of light, but Over time, a dark spirit named Ariman, A-H-R-I-M-A-N, or at least that's the English translation of the Persian name, this Ariman developed into what Westerners might recognize as Satan. He was hailed by the Avesta, the Zoroastrian scripture, as the demon of demons who lived in an abyss of endless darkness. So the world was now not depicted as perhaps a continuum or a spectrum of moral choices, But there was now a very clear dichotomy between good and evil, between light and darkness. There were just two sides, two perspectives. So something new in this theology as well was the elevation of the human being, who was no longer a mere pawn in the game of the gods, doomed to be discarded at the end of his or her life in some dim underworld of shades and shadows. No, each human being was faced with the noble task of choosing between light and darkness, this dualism would act both as thesis and antithesis in early Christianity, particularly when they confronted the Manichaeans. But that's a story for the third podcast of series about the Roman Empire and the early Christianity, which I will not begin for another couple of years. The Zoroastrians also venerated fire virtually as a god itself. Fire purifies, and spiritual purification was a primary is a primary goal of Zoroastrians. This veneration of fire might sound strange at first to modern Western ears, but such honor for fire certainly played a role in ancient Roman religion, in which the home hearth was of spiritual importance, and it continues to play a role among Catholics, the vast majority of the modern Christian population, who still use fire in important rituals, such as at the Easter Vigil Mass, and of course in candles, which are recognized as items of spiritual significance in a variety of Christian and non-christian expressions in the west the zoroastrians also gave important honor to the sun which was the undying fire of the sky the avesta counsels men to reverence the sun all day yet there are many things that are strange and exotic to us about zoroastrianism take for instance the way that they handled death in the past the bodies of the dead were to be left out for nature to do away with not to be buried or shuttered up in mausoleums or tombs. Typically, these dead believers were left atop circular wood or stone structures known as towers of silence from where buzzards and insects could break down their bodies and return them to the earth. Modern Zoroastrians, perhaps forced by local laws as they all live in countries whose majorities are not fellow believers, most modern Zoroastrians cannot continue this practice. Now, As often happens in this podcast, I have come to a subject on which I could write entire books. Zoroastrianism is an ancient religion that made important influences on Christianity and on Islam. Furthermore, over the centuries, it has expressed itself in a wide variety of ways, just like Christianity. But someone else will have to write books about these manifestations and details of Zoroastrian practices. These practices did not, by the way, experience the same enduring supremacy in Persia as Christianity did in the West particularly after the Persian defeat at the hands of the Greeks in the 4th century BC. Mithraism began to make a comeback in popular religion in Persia, perhaps because there was no longer imperial support for Zoroastrian beliefs, but it seems like the resurgence of Mithraism had begun even before that. Zoroastrianism would be revived in the early medieval period as the state religion of a later Persian empire, but newly suppressed after the Muslim conquest in the 7th century AD. 538 BC, Cyrus, king of Persia, became a savior for the scattered Jews of Israel. He published his famous declaration preserved in the text of the Bible and reproduced at the beginning of this episode. In it, Cyrus declared the freedom of the peoples of Judah to return to their homeland and to reconstruct their temple. The authenticity of this document is in question. It is certainly true that Cyrus released many exiled peoples after he conquered Babylon, Whether he made a particular gesture to the Jews is unknown from an archaeological standpoint. The attestation found in the Bible is the only known source. It is speculated by some that Cyrus was a Zoroastrian and thus sensed a fellowship with the monotheistic Jews, but this is not a confirmed fact. But return the Jews did, whether all at once or slowly over several decades. The historical accounts of the kings of Israel end, as do many portions of the Bible, on a curious cliffhanger. In the last chapters of the second book of Kings, the king of Israel has been deposed, horribly tortured, and replaced with a governor appointed by the Babylonians. Then, suddenly, in the very last section, there is that unexpected letter from Cyrus the Great, victorious king of the new Persian Empire, several decades after the exile of Israel had begun. Let the Jews return to their homeland and construct a new temple. There's actually a lot of story in those decades of exile A lot of important history for the people of of Israel, perhaps more important in terms of their long-term survival than their previous history. In the opinion of many scholars, it was in the exile that the Jewish identity was truly forged. Displaced and dispirited, the exiles clung to the scrolls of their law and their prophets, and surrounded by a common enemy, by strangers, they were united more perhaps than they had ever been. And they wrote more books while they were in exile, and they stripped down Protestant versions of the Bible, there is less evidence of this, but the Catholics and the various stripes of Orthodox Christians all preserve a heftier sample of the writings of the, ex- of the exiles. Let us begin with a book common to all Christian traditions, the book of the prophet Ezekiel. While there may be debate about how much and how many of the other books of the Bible were composed during the exile, there is no doubt about the book of Ezekiel. The author openly declares his presence among the exiles living in the Babylonian Empire on the banks of the Chebar River, a location most likely somewhere in northern Iraq today. He, Ezekiel, the writer, was one of the priestly class, a member of the tribe of Levi, whose people handled the ritual needs of other tribes of Israel, as the tribe of the Magi did for the Persians. Now, prophetic books are always a little eerie in some respects, but the prophecies of Ezekiel really surpassed the others in this regard. If you have any familiarity with the Apocalypse, also called the Book of Revelation, in the New Testament, then you will have some idea of the sounds and images described in Ezekiel, because the Apocalypse borrowed heavily from Ezekiel and also from Daniel, another book of prophecy. Here in the Book of Ezekiel abound strange visions of creatures celestial, and they are not the pink-cheeked cherubs of Renaissance art that you might expect nor are they the androgynous winged figures that are often drawn when angels are intended. No, here we meet the cherubim, the angels of the Lord, and I cannot describe them better than Ezekiel himself. The four living creatures looked like this. Their form was human, but each had four faces and four wings, and their legs went straight down. The soles of their feet were round, They gleamed like burnished bronze. Human hands were under the wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. I saw wheels on the ground, one beside each living creature. They were constructed as though one wheel were within another, and I saw that their rims were full of eyes. From Ezekiel chapter 1. I have left out much detail in his description of angels that is also strange, but I'm not going to reproduce entire chapters of the Bible in this podcast. Let the curious reader open to the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel himself and learn more about Ezekiel's distinct perception of celestial creatures. As if the images of angels are not strange enough, so too are the words and actions of the author. If we are to believe the text of Ezekiel and all that it implies, at one point Ezekiel went mute because the Lord did not want him to warn the people about their doom. Then, also apparently at the Lord's instruction, Ezekiel draws the city of Jerusalem on a clay tablet, and he draws out as well the battle and the siege that surrounded it. Then he lay on his left side next to the depiction for 390 days, on his left side to symbolize the years of exile of the long-lost kingdom of Israel. Afterwards, he lies on his right side for 40 days, again to symbolize the years of exile for the more recently vanquished kingdom of Judah. There is more bizarreness. To show his fellow Jews how much they will suffer, he cooks his bread loaves over fires, fires fueled with human excrement, and Ezekiel eats them in the sight of his fellow exiles. Beyond these bizarre scenes and images, Ezekiel, though, has much more to contribute to the history of religion in the West. Here in this book, we hear of the resurrection, not for the first time, no, Isaiah and others had spoken of the possibility prior to the exile, but Ezekiel does much more than allude to some future period in which the dead will live again. He describes the resurrection in a way that will have a lasting impact on its legacy in the West. He describes in chapter 37 of his book of prophecies, the Valley of Dry Bones, and how at the command of the Lord God all the bones of the dead of Israel rise up again. Never before was the resurrection so definitively described. Now, prior to the prophets, the Hebrews had apparently believed in a place called Sheol, a subterranean realm where the souls of the dead dwelled after earthly life had ceased. And it does not sound much different than that underworld depicted in the Epic of Gilgamesh 5,000 years ago, a dim place where the shades of the formerly living wander about, neither joyous nor punished, but in some kind of ethereal imitation of their above-ground existence. Here, in the book of Ezekiel, we see a different kind of afterlife promised, a renewed and revivified physical existence. It is not the souls of the dead that exist in the afterlife, but bodies. The resurrection does not promise an eternity in heaven with God, but in an eternity living on earth in a real body. Some six centuries later, Jesus of Nazareth will continue to popularize this idea when he spreads his gospel and the promise of resurrection among the later Israelites under the Roman Empire, that the dead will rise and live in harmony with God forever, that every tear shall be wiped away, that eternal bliss will be given to those who are faithful to God. Interestingly, on a side note, this is no longer really the Christian idea of the afterlife. If you ask a nominally nominally Christian person or individual today about the afterlife, they will most likely tell you something about living up there, thumb pointed toward the sky and heaven, some hard-to-pin-down location in space where everyone leads an ethereal existence in the clouds. Not really that much different. Than that depicted by the early Sumerians in the Epic of Gilgamesh, except that it takes place in the sky rather than below the surface of the earth. But this resurrection of Ezekiel, this physical resurrection, is an increasingly popular idea in authentic Jewish faith after the exile, and it is a bedrock concept for the Christian faith in the early centuries after the death of Jesus. When you read the New Testament, whose events occur some 600 years after the prophecies of Ezekiel, you can see that there is still some divide among Jewish believers regarding this matter. The Sadducees, with whom Jesus has some interlocutions, they are of the priestly class, and they do not generally believe in or focus on ideas of the afterlife. They concern themselves with ritual sacrifice and with making oneself right with God during your earthly life, with little or no regard for an afterlife." The Pharisees of the New Testament, however, are a separate party among the Jews of Jesus' time, and they embrace the visions of Ezekiel and of other prophets, that there will be a redemption for the suffering of this world, and a mysterious union with God after death, for those who have been faithful to the God of Israel anyway. Another of the prophetic books, that of Daniel, also describes people and events of the exile, though it is probably written long after the Jews had returned to Israel. The book contains some famous passages, such as that of the heroes of the tale being placed in a furnace by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar II, yet the heroes are unharmed. Daniel, the protagonist and one of those who survived the furnace, is also a dream interpreter, much like his ancestor Joseph from the book of Genesis. Daniel is elevated to high office by the Babylonian king, but he is also menaced when he refuses to worship the king and he is thrown into a lion's den, but again, he remains unharmed. The book also contains several visions of the future, prophecies, which have been interpreted variably by both Jews and Christians for thousands of years now. There were other books in the Bible written to describe events in life during the exile, though they may have been written at much later dates. The most well-known is probably the book of Esther, which remains important especially in Jewish tradition and is the fundamental text of the celebration of Purim every year. The book describes the unlikely elevation of a Jewish maiden to marriage with the Persian king. Only her privileged position allows her to to deter a pogrom or a massacre that the king nearly unleashes on the Jewish populace. Other books, not found in Protestant versions of the Bible, include the stories of Tobit and Judith, the latter being an addition to the few female heroines of the Bible. Judith actually cuts off the head of an Assyrian general and saves her people from destruction. It is not clear exactly when the events of these books take place, but they seem intended to reflect on the exile experience. They were probably written, though many centuries later. They may be written versions of oral tales passed down through the years as well. When the Jews returned from exile, thanks to Cyrus the Great, they faced a daunting task, returning to a land that their grandfathers had been forced to leave. The story of some of their struggles is contained in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which relates the difficulties that they had both in rebuilding their temple and in simply getting along with the other inhabitants of their former homeland. Other prophets wrote their books during this period after the return as well, encouraging the Jews to build the temple, to remain faithful to God in times of difficulty or stress. According to Jewish and Protestant belief, this time period, right around 400 B.C., marked the last time that authentic prophecy was received in Israel. Thus, no books known to be written after this period are accepted as canonical by Jews or Protestant Christians. However, it is now understood that many canonical books were actually written much later, such as the prophecies of Daniel, which were probably composed just a century before the birth of Christ. Jewish history was not at an end, though, even if prophecy was. When Alexander the Great comes through Jerusalem after defeating the Persians for the first time at the Battle of Issus in the 4th century BC, the Jews will be there to welcome him with their new Second Temple, a modest reflection of the Temple of Solomon from before the exile. And the Jews will be there still in the 2nd century BC when they rise up against the Greeks in the Maccabean Revolt and once again establish an independent kingdom in Palestine. This kingdom would endure for about a century, surviving endless skirmishes and squabbles, amongst themselves and against their neighbors before the Romans came and crushed all dissent, a few decades before the birth of Christ. The ancient world is coming to an end. With the rise of the Persian Empire, we have reached a new day, a new stage. Western history is about to begin. We have traced the paths of the Jewish people throughout the last few episodes because their story is not one that can simply be encapsulated in a single episode and passed over. No, it is intertwined with the entire story of the West. If they had not been returned to Israel by Cyrus the Great, If there had not been a vibrant, if suffering, Jewish faith in Israel when Jesus was born, the entire trajectory of the West might have been very different. Recall, if you will, how I described the religious picture of the West in the early years of the Roman Empire, with the state religion of Rome assimilating many Mediterranean religions, such as the Egyptian gods and Mithraism, While outside the confines of the empire, there were Odin and Thor of the Norsemen, and the Druids were teaching the Celts about their many colorful colorful gods of the natural world. Had not the Jews returned to Israel when they did, and held on fanatically to their monotheism, the religious and political future of Europe and the West would most likely have been very different than the one that ensued. Try to imagine a post-Roman Europe without Christianity. The possibilities are endless, but they all would have obviously resulted in a much much different world. But I am getting ahead of myself. We are not to the Middle Ages yet. That will be the subject of the fourth series of podcasts, and we are now, just now, finishing the first series on the ancient world. Soon I will begin the second series on the ancient Greeks. So let's turn our eyes west here. At the end of this episode and at the end of this first series, civilization, long present in Mesopotamia and Egypt, has seeped slowly into the surrounding lands, Anatolia is now vibrant with cities and trade, and Minoan civilization on the island of Crete had already long ago made landfall in mainland Greece in a place called Mycenae, not far from the land that would later bear the name Sparta. In the next series, I will begin to expound on our Western traditions with these Mycenaeans and continue with the Greek timeline, getting all the way through Greek mythology and the glory and tragedy of classical Greece, and right on to Alexander the Great. In the meantime, I encourage you to visit the website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. I will spend the rest of June making some updates there, adding to the maps, the source lists, and the suggested readings, and I will begin to sell Western Traditions merchandise. Presently, all the episodes on that website are found under the Series 1 tab, but beginning in July, you should start to see new episodes appearing under the second Series tab, labeled The Greek Sun. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.